Back in on Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. Again, uh, Canucks in Minnesota Wild tonight. We'll have free games starting up at 6 o'clock. We'll join up on Sportsnet Pacific following the uh, Buffalo Sabres and Boston Bruins game. But that's all to come a little bit later on. I want to get more in on your Vancouver Canucks here and uh, some of the discussions we just had with Bick Nazar in the roundtable a lot of questions coming in, 650-650 at the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We can get to some of those as it's – look, right now they're 6-7. and seven. A lot of parts of the team aren't going as well as they were early in the season. Yes. That is uh, not only fair to say, it is a fact. <laughs> um, but we – like – this, this always happens. Certain things get the microscope. Certain things are bigger issues than others, and they become the bigger talking points. But Johnny Mac wants the discussion to shift a little bit in another direction. Maybe Philip Hronick. How about Hronick not picking up Brat on the winning goal, or even worse, not having Quinn Hughes on the ice? In the final minute, uh, that I guess a bit of a critique for Rick Tockett from Johnny Mac on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Yeah, and you know, as good as Heronic's been, I mean, you 25 points in 26 games, incredible, right? And we talk about how what a wonderful acquisition he's been. This last stretch, he's made some really curious decisions. He's yes. on the ice. And you wonder, is it the ice time getting to him? Something the coach has alluded to. And something else he alluded to today was how slow those guys are playing. And you're seeing it like they're I think sometimes when you have two guys who can be so good together it's like you you don't want to do the easy thing because you just want to do the spectacular thing or the really really good thing yeah and that's something that the coach was alluding to sometimes just rim the puck out or just glassing out it's okay like sometimes when you have that much pressure against you and when you don't have anything available to you it's okay for you to just kind of rim it around don't slow the game down so much. Don't reset so much. And that's something we're seeing from them. They're playing a lot slower. And what that does is invite pressure. And that's what we're seeing, them really being hemmed in their own zone a lot. And when that happens, you see them start starting to free apart a little bit. And Hironic recently in those situations has had a real hard time picking up his man and getting to his right spot. So um, Hironic has been a pleasant surprise to just how good he's been. He's started to show a few warts. And I think this is more the conversation of, well, he's not a first-pair defenseman. Mm -hmm. And I think we knew that when he was acquired, but is he you know, a real quality three in the league? Um, maybe not so much a two, but can he be a big part of your top four, which as uh, we've seen in Vancouver, very difficult to find. And I think this is going to be the hard part with deciding his contract negotiation, considering he's scoring a lot of points. He is playing a lot of minutes with Quinn Hughes, but his effect on the team when he's played minutes away from Quinn Hughes has not been nearly as positive. And it's reflected in some of the shot metrics and even just the the raw goals, seven goals for six against. So still above water, but it's a far cry from the plus 11 
him and Hughes are together when they are on the ice. They're not dominating the same way they they've done in yeah. the past, right? And and th- those things are going to happen. It comes down to are they incapable of handling that big a workload together? And I think that's why you're starting to see, as a texter alluded to, them not be out there in some moments you, where you would expect them to be out there. You have to reduce their minutes somewhere somehow, right? And they leaned on Hughes heavily to get back to that game, and he was a big part of why they were able to tie it 5-5 against New Jersey. But you're not going to have him out there the entire game. You have to rely on some other players. And I think when you're asking that much of those guys, it can be problematic. And as much as I like the, I love the idea of having them together, and not to say you want to split them up for long portions, but maybe they have to get away from being together exclusively all the time, like mm-hmm. in games as well. Like, do they manage it a bit more by committee still, like change the D pairs up a bit? You have Zadorov now, you have Cole, you have Myers. You feel pretty confident, obviously, with how they deploy those guys. But can you maybe get those guys separated at times and just let them play a bit more simple with other players? And, and perhaps that can ensure that they don't get into a bit of a malaise like we've seen recently. Um. So with uh, Philip Ronick on the ice, without Quinn Hughes, the Canucks have a uh, 40% shot share and are seven goals for just six against. Now, a large portion of that is defensive zone face-offs and so more heavy defensive yeah. shifts just to sort of give a little bit of context to how they're using Ronick when he's not paired with Hughes. We see... Especially when they have an offensive zone faceoff, they're going to go to Quinn Hughes and Philip Ronick. This yeah. is sort of the the defense by committee developing as the season's gone on. But as Gurjeet texts in six fifty six fifty on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox, we'd got we got to see Ronick on his own pair, pair him with either Zadorov or Cole, and see what he can actually do. Can he carry a pairing, or is he just riding off of Quinn's coattails? Look, I think. You know, we've talked a lot about Pronick's contract already, but this is part of the reason why it's it's hard to think of Pronick getting more than much more than seven million per season because I'm not sure he's that kind of a player, even if his point totals might suggest that he should be like an eight million dollar defenseman as a guy who's right shot and scoring near point a game. Yeah, and this is why it's always uh you always have to be a little bit careful having discussions about players' contracts during the hottest spells of their yes. season. And he's at a point per game, essentially 25 and 26. What does that look like as the season goes on? Because when you look at it as, okay, well, if he's going to crest 60, 70 points, I mean, there's no way he doesn't get at least seven and a half. Yeah. At least he gets what Vince Dunn got. Like Vince Dunn had like, what, 60 some points last year, and he got, you know, he got a shorter term contract, but it was, I think it was over 7 million per season. Yes. 7.7 or something along those lines. So and it was one great season for Vince Dunn. Yeah. Essentially. So, so if he's going to be putting up 60 points, and he's, this is a guy who's had 40 points before, then yes, I mean, that's that's what you have to pay him. Yeah. But if he ends up the year in the 50-some point range or whatever, and it's clear that, okay, he's really good, but he's not that guy, then maybe it is closer to what we mentioned before, this Damon Severson contract. You know, maybe just under seven or just around seven million over yeah. a long term. And that's more manageable. The cap's going up. I don't think that's an unfair number to give your number, you know, two slash three defensemen that amount of money. Like, I think you can live with that. But there is a question, and we talked about this before. Like, if, if we're talking about him finishing the year with these massive point totals and the agent's going to be asking for $8 million plus, yeah. does that even make sense? Yeah. You know, a good problem to have in some, mm-hmm. in some ways, but, you know, it's a fair question to ask. It uh, could make things a little bit uh, trickier for Patrick Alvin, but maybe uh, a reason why they haven't really 
started talking contract with Philip Ronick and his camp. Yeah, I mean, Ken and North Van um, and, and somebody else texted in too and said, is, is this why Stevie why let him go? One wonders if Eisman saw Ronick heading up the second pair and wasn't convinced. Ken and North Van texting in. I mean, they, they have a righty defenseman in Maurice Sider. Yeah. Who they like to have in every situation. And I think it was pretty simple. They felt like he's not as good as Sider, obviously. And if we're paying, spending this much money on this guy to be in every situation as a righty, how much do we want to pay for our you know, number two righty? Yeah. Whereas Hironic is the number one righty in Vancouver, playing in every one of those situations, which you can use him in. It makes more sense. I think for them, it was a, they're very analytical. Uh, the the Red Wings too. Right. You see also with how much they want to develop and draft a number of picks and all that. They want to have as many picks as possible. I think they looked at it and said, we just don't think it's worth paying what he's probably going to make to be the second pair righty defenseman. That a big part of the conversation, right? When you have Maritz Sider, you know who your top guy is. Ronick, uh, still while very good as a right shot defender, not as good as Maritz Sider. It's the same discussion we have with Hughes here. When you have Hughes on the first D pair right, and he's your number one power play guy, your go-to guy, then what type of lefty do you want to be behind him? Well, it was part of the reason, you know, it was somewhat baffling that they were so in on Oliver Ekman Larson, mm -hmm. other than, uh, you know, just the, the need to add a defenseman and, uh, you know, needing to get rid of some of the contracts they, they needed to get rid of. But that is very much a part of the, the equation when it comes to it for the Vancouver Canucks. Now, Staying on the defense, this uh, question came in. Um, what can Myers realistically get at the deadline? Um, because it's forever going to be the conversation. Uh, as long as Tyler Myers is a Vancouver Canuck, what's he going to get us in trade? How much are you going to have to pay to get rid of him? I do think, you know, if that becomes somewhat of a possibility as we get closer to that point of the season, uh, Myers is probably worth a third, potentially. Uh, well, a third round pick is probably where I would ballpark it. I'd say, actually, I, th I think the third round pick is the safe low end, the okay. floor of what you get for him. I think there's a chance you can get a second for him. Right. You know, Especially and, if you retain, I guess. Yeah, you retain some salary because he's a, he's a righty defenseman. He's logged a lot of minutes. He is big, has a track record of looking good in the postseason as well. And especially with how he's played, I know Canucks fans are sick and tired of watching Myers. And, you know, of course, he was to blame, too, against New Jersey and everything. But his game has been better this year to the point where others watching him yes. come away looking at it as like, okay, this guy, this is a guy who can help us and do certain things for us. So I think if you retain and he keeps playing well, mm -hmm. I think there's a chance that his value could be as high as a second round pick. I think that is uh, very contingent on um, whether or not the Canucks land Ethan Bear as a as a free agent but even then it might not be a slam dunk like you're in a spot where you're probably going to the playoffs and you're going to have to make a decision is Myers worth more to us in a second or potentially third round draft choice than he is um on our team like is that pick more worth it to us and the cap space that comes with trading Myers more worth it than what he's currently providing for our team. Well, and so, and I think that's a fair question. And that's why I think if they're moving him for that type of return, I would very much expect him to flip that return. Right. And whatever else it would take 
you know, and, and I'm not, not saying a second and a first or anything, but to potentially land something to replace Myers. Yeah, because I mean, Chris Tanner's worth a first, probably. Like they, they probably want the value of a first round pick or a really good prospect or a good prospect and and some sort of a draft pick, right? Right. You have a second round draft pick, then it's like, can you give them a prospect as well? Not like Harry Mackey, obviously not Will Lander, but is there somebody you can give them with that second where? You can get Chris Tanev, maybe, right, right? right? Like that could possibly be in play. So that's what I would expect to happen. And I'm not reporting anything. I'm just saying based on you know what I would you know what I can see happening. And that's where I think the contingency comes in on Myers. And the other thing too is, and and people hate this, other than Rafe, who says Myers is their own rental. What about extending Myers? Because there are people that are just sick and tired of him. They're like, well, just get him out of here. I, I I don't care. Like even if it's for the league minimum, I can't I don't watch want this guy. guy anymore. Yes. But is there a price where you're okay bringing him back? And uh, and listen, I'm team cut the cord at some point, right? Like yes. I'm I'm very much down that path. But I've also said this, and I still maintain this. There's always a number that makes sense for almost any player, mm-hmm. if it's low enough. And I think the team would consider that with Myers. That there is a number they would sign him for beyond this season. Like I think that's that's something that is in play potentially here. Like I don't I don't think we can dismiss that. I know fans are sick of it. We're sick of talking about Myers and you know it's something that's obviously not he's one of their most if not the most inefficient contract. Yes. Him and Garland, right? I mean, in Garland you can say at least from a 5 on 5 play driving standpoint is giving you positive contributions even though he's not scoring, right? And that criticizes the game all the time. Myers a bit more erratic and he's certainly not worth 6 million. Yeah. But I wonder if they think if we get him back at two, two and a half, maybe it is worth bringing him back. But I wonder if, if fans are just out on him and they're just done. They I don't think want there, is, there, there is a level of Myers fatigue that the fan base will not get over. But I would have said that I'd, I would have expected that with Brandon Sutter as well. I mean, remember when they signed Sutter yeah. after his... Uh, you know, foundational player contract ended yes. uh, for one year, $1 million. And she started playing. He scored that hat trick against Ottawa. And was like, this is the Brandon Sutter that we, we thought we yeah. were getting, you know, third liner, right shot, face off guy, good on the PK. And you're only paying him a million bucks. Like I can, I can get behind this guy. If you were to re-sign Myers, it has to be at a number that's low enough that everybody understands fans included when they go to cap friendly and they see how much Tyler Myers is making this guy's a third pair defenseman and that's what I'm judging him as but when he's making six million bucks people when the contract was signed and he's making six million bucks 30 million over five years even though it was less than they expected less than we all expected at the time they signed it it's hard to judge him and not look at him given that pay as somebody who's supposed to be at the level of a first or second pair defenseman. Yeah. And well, second, I think in today's league, and yeah. we were talking Damon Severson getting six. He's yep. a second pair of D man. So that's second pair of money. Yeah. When high end second pair it, of money. But when when Myers was signed, yeah, high high end second pair, uh, six million bucks even even when he signed the contract because the cap has pretty much been flat ever <laughs> ha- since. Hasn't moved too much in and five ha- years. <laughs> hasn't really moved too much in five years. And why why would you br- why would you even entertain the idea of bringing back Tyler Myers? Uh, just a reminder: go and look at the right shot defensemen that will be free agents in the summer, and uh, then you will know why uh, there is a possibility you would entertain the idea of bringing back Tyler Myers. Yeah. 
You know, you're looking at Chris Tanev, um, Tyson Berry, Nikita Zaitsev, John Klingberg coming off of hip surgery, Matt Dumba, who might be interesting, Brandon Montour, but he looks like he's going to stay in Florida. You know, like those are the be- Dylan DeMello, um, Justin Schultz, Ilya Labushkin, Sean Walker. You know, there's a few names in there that you, you might have a little bit of interest in, but very few, and all of them are going to get overpaid in free agency. Well, that's the thing. Like, I like what Sean Walker's done, but how much have you seen to be convinced? And what is he commanding? Yeah. Like, I mean, he feels like a guy that's going to command around $5 million next year. I'm sure he's going to ask for that, but is he going to get the Carson Soucy type of contract? Right. Three, three and a half. But I mean, like, do you feel comfortable giving Sean Walker three and a half for three or four years? Because that's probably what he's looking for, term. Yeah. And the only reason Myers would make sense for me is literally two years. Yeah. And it's under three million. It has to be under three million. If it's not, then to me it doesn't make I'd rather go after Sean Walker. If you're doing two years of three million per year for for Tyler Myers, I'd rather do the third year for a guy like Sean Walker and take a chance on a younger player who's a righty defenseman who has maybe a bit more upside. If the price is right, and that's what Robin Victoria says, Myers needs to play in, in a five or six role, no more than twelve, fifteen well, fifteen minutes a night, two million for two years. That's of a role, that's of a money, that makes sense. Bob and North Van, the chaos giraffe for a reason. <laughs> I think he's team no. And Mikel says, I think Myers is, a, is an example of a player with low hockey IQ, which is something you can't teach or coach into a player. But Sam believes in him and says, I like Myers. I hope they keep him. So you get a bit of everything in the text inbox. Yeah, you get a, a little bit of, of it all. And, you know, Myers... I've actually liked his game over the last couple of weeks, but you know he was very poor, like a lot of players were the other night, and uh, is now right back in the crosshairs of yeah. of many Canucks fans. Uh, Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. When we come back, uh, the Edmonton Oilers were off to a crazy bad start, but they are coming out of it. Another big win. Last night, 6-1 over the Carolina Hurricanes. They've won five in a row. McDavid's hot. Zach Hyman's hot. Their goaltending's better. They're defending better. They're moving their way up the standings. Jack Michaels joins us next on Canuck Central. Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dan Richo, Satyo Shaw, Canuck Central in the Kintech studio. This hour of Canuck Central is brought to you by Brevo. Brevo provides convenient cloud-based access control systems from your mobile device for any industry. Go to lp.brevo.com slash Canada for a smart demonstration. Uh, still a uh, lot to get to here on the show before we take it to Minnesota. Well, to Rogers Arena for the Canucks and Minnesota Wild. We're not actually going to Minnesota. No, that's not happening. No. It's a home game. Why would we? <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> Makes no sense whatsoever. at all. Makes no Why sense go to all. Minnesota when you don't have to? No. Um, so, yes, Minnesota, a team that uh, fired their coach and have now won four in a row. We'll get into the changes they've made. But also the other team that's made a coaching change this season, the Edmonton Oilers, Starting to find their way as well. They've won five in a row last night, putting the boots to the Carolina Hurricanes six to one. It was uh, four nothing 
pretty much by the 15 minute mark of the first period. It was uh, the revenge they got after yeah. uh, Carolina did that to them a couple of weeks ago out east. Now, like this is just to illustrate how far back the Oilers were. They've won five in a row. Their points percentage is four four fifty seven now. That is still twenty sixth best in the league. So the latter still has much climbing to do for, uh, or the Oilers have much climbing to do on the ladder, but uh, they are starting to make a little bit of headway. Let's bring in uh, Oilers play-by-play on Sportsnet. It is Jack Michaels joining us here on uh, on Canuck Central. Thanks for this, Jack. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, just about to settle in and watch Vancouver and Minnesota myself. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting one for the Canucks lately, but uh, no no more interesting team than the Edmonton Oilers, I think, uh, maybe across the league so far to, to start this season. And uh, we know the coaching change and all of that, but they've now won five in a row. Is uh, like what what is what is uh, the star that uh, the the straw that's stirring the drink that's led to this uh, this turnaround? I, I think it's kind of just normalcy. I think it's it's kind of the natural flow of a season. If you, if you consider kind of what Edmonton was supposed to be at the start of the year, you looked at the roster at two, nine and one and five, 12 and one, you know, I just, in most cases, that's not going to continue. And it's just a matter of, you know, getting a win here and there. And, and it starts to flow in the other direction. And because and, honestly, you know, number one, I think you guys would agree with me outside of the top, you know, five or six in the West, there's not a lot of depth in the Western conference. I think the seventh or eighth place team this year, you know, could set not historical lows, but I I think you could see a playoff team perhaps in the high eighties, low nineties this year. It used to be, you needed 96, you needed 98 points to get in. I think 97 missed one year. This is not one of those years. I think the players were patient. I think the players were frustrated. I think the players were were embarrassed that they got a coach fired. You know, quite frankly, I, I think uh, really the t- the two teams that are playing tomorrow night are in very similar situations. You know, Minnesota and Edmonton coming off back to back one hundred point years. Uh, the difference is, of course, at at the you know upper end of the roster where the Oilers have two of the top five players in the world and it was a matter of time before they settled in I I just can't tell you how many times if you watch the games how you know Leon Drysaddle's one-timers weren't going in Mm -hmm. and and you know Connor McDavid wasn't quite himself he got a little banged up had to miss a couple of games wasn't quite himself but you knew he'd get going I, I just think in most cases when you have a team in their prime it's a little bit different when you get a team you know, kind of later on in its in its stage, where sometimes a team can get old in one year, and and it's all of a sudden over. You know, maybe maybe Golden State in the NBA would be an example of that, where where they win one last championship, but now they look like a team that's kind of out of steam. When you've got the core of your players and the heart of your lineup all either in their mid twenties or their late twenties eventually it's going to start going the other way. Uh, you know, Stuart Skinner, I'm not suggesting is a top 10 goalie, but he's also not going to play to an 850 all year. Eventually things are going to start to turn around. 
And I, I thought the players, for the most part, did a good job of being patient. The one thing I will say about the coaching change, and then I'll let you guys talk because this is a complicated answer, but the one thing I will say is there were a lot of changes and shuffling early when it started to fall off a cliff a little bit. That settled down. And I'll give you an example. On the penalty kill, for instance, 24 different forward combinations were used in the first month of the year. Uh, since Chris Knobloch came in, he's basically gone to three pairs of forwards on the penalty kill, and all of a sudden it's 22 for its last 23. That's, that's one thing that I think the coaching change has done is it wasn't, hey, what's going on? It's, all right, let's, let's stick to the plan a little bit here, ride this out, and we'll get going eventually. Well, I mean, Edmonton's a team that over over these past five games has only allowed, what is it, eight goals? They allowed eight in that first game against Vancouver, as we all know. And it's easy to look at, you know, Skinner, who's been outstanding. But how much better have they also been defensively helping him out? Well, I think I, I think to a man, everyone's just just settled down and, and, and not necessarily, you know, chased everything. Even in that first game, you know, you guys watched it. I mean, you know, the Oilers got down two nothing and 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 tried to get the two goals back in one shift, and it led to another goal. You know, you know what I mean. It was those sort of things that were happening early in the year where you you try to get it all the way back, and and even at like one five and one or or two six and one, the talk was, well, we got to get back to five hundred. And, and that ultimately is, is not the way to do it over the course of an 82-game season. It's a little more understandable if you've only got 20 games left, but when you've got 70 games you know, to go, you can't worry about you know, straightening out your record in the next eight games. You can't worry about winning eight in a row. You've got to play a good period. You've got to play a good game. You've got to play a good week. And that's how you get back into the rhythm of the season and the way you should be playing. And I think the Oilers, you know, look, they're human. They, they knew what the expectations were. They had those expectations themselves. They, you know, they talked about cup or bust. Sometimes when you do that and it goes a little bit sideways at the beginning of the year, there's a tendency to get it, to try to make a 25-point a shot, you know, to use a basketball term, or hit a 900-foot home run. Right. You know, I think the Oilers have done a better job chipping away, and that's kind of healed the defensive side of their game. And last night, Carolina finished with 39 shots. That was kind of a score effects type of game. But, you know, when the, when the game was still in doubt in the second period and you'd expect Carolina to make a push, I think five on five, the Oilers only gave up a handful of shots. You know, they, they've, been, they've been much better at shot suppression and that sort of thing. You know, the four wins prior to last night, they were giving up 25 shots a game. So they've made life a little bit easier for the goalies. They're not giving up the two-on-ones and the three-on-ones that Vancouver got time and time again, even in the second game. And I know Edmonton outshot Vancouver 41 to 16, but I, I still think if you think about that second game, three of the four Vancouver goals were tap-ins, you know? So yeah. uh, they were, they were giving up mammoth chances. And, and I'll tell you another team that's doing it right now. And that's Carolina, you know, Carolina's got to figure some things out too. There's some teams out there expected to be very good where a little leaky goaltending early has led to 
some uncharacteristic patterns in the overall game. It's more pronounced with Carolina because they've always been known as a strong defensive club. But even for Edmonton, I think you'd agree with me, the Oilers weren't necessarily lights out defensively last year, but they were middle of the pack. I mean, they were they were respectable. And in the first, you know, 10, 11 games, in fairness to Stuart Skinner, they weren't giving him much of a chance. They weren't giving Jack Campbell much of a chance either. Yeah, I think uh, I think back to all three of the games between the Canucks and, and Edmonton Oilers, and uh, the, the the Oilers def- defensively resembled uh, the Canucks of, of maybe last season, which got uh, Bruce Boudreau uh, shown the door for, right. for Vancouver. Right, out of position, yeah. two-on-ones, guys wide open in the slot. Like, you know, Vancouver, I think coming into the year, you wouldn't have said, well, this is going to be a dynamic offensive club. Well, You know, the Canucks got eight goals in the first game. They got four on 16 shots in the second game. And, you know, they got six and and were just throwing it around, you know, doing whatever they want in the third game. So, yeah, I mean, Edmonton was making a lot of teams look good early. That's not to take anything away from what Rick Tock has done. He's done a great job. And I think Vancouver, you know, unlike Edmonton, has given themselves a real cushion where – when the Canucks inevitably start to come back to the field, and you guys alluded to that a little bit early on, they put a lot of points in the bank. They can they can afford a three and seven lull over the next ten games, and that's the one thing I'll say about Edmonton is, you know, I, I, look, I, I think the Oilers are going to be in the playoffs. I think it's a slam dunk. I think they've got an outside chance to even sneak into the three hole in the Pacific. I really do. I mean. I'm just looking at the roster. This is kind of objective. This is not me being the Oilers announcer, but what they can't afford is another three and seven stretch because then the pressure will be really magnified. Uh, Teams like Vancouver and LA who've gotten off to really good starts. They can afford that mid season swoon. Yeah. No, no more mulligans uh, for, uh, for the Oilers uh, as, as the season goes on Uh, since, uh, since Chris Knobloch came in as coach. And I think this is uh, sort of speaks to a little bit of the turnaround as well. uh, Connor McDavid leads the league in points. He's got 22 in uh, the 10 games since Chris Knobloch took over. And, you know, it was kind of a big talking point, how McDavid came out of the gates a little bit slower. He had that er injury early on in the season, but you know, even watching last night, he, he looks more like the Connor McDavid we've seen uh, time and time again. Oh, no question. I mean, you know, he had 13 points in the first 14 games, which, you know, for anyone else, you're on your way to an 80-point campaign, and, you know, that's a pretty solid year. For Connor McDavid, it was alarm bells, absolutely. And yeah. <laughs> and really, you know, the same could be said for Leon Dreisaitl. I mean, and and – and Leon really hasn't completely found his stride. And, you know, Connor McDavid still has eight goals. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think there's more to be had from them, but no question they've pulled themselves out of it. And I think they're going to be better players for this because for the first time in five years, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating, five, maybe I'll go six years since I think it was early 17, 18. For the first time in six full years, they felt what it was like to be the average NHL player, even the above average NHL player. They felt like what it was to be even a Nathan McKinnon or an Austin Matthews. Like, hey, I'm struggling. That 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 hasn't happened. And I 
and and it, it's not again. I I don't mean to sound like an Edmonton, you know, bias here, but I, I'm sorry. Like Connor McDavid hasn't struggled. Like they haven't struggled the last, you know, three fifty. I, I mean, I could go on about the accolades. You can look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. They just haven't gone through the kind of stretch they went through early in this year. And I, I thought they handled it very well. They were matter of fact about it. They said, look. You know, any talk about our season this year and why we've struggled begins and ends with us. And I thought that was a mature way to, you know, handle it. Uh, you know, they they recognize that all the accolades typically go their way when this team has a great deal of success. And the numbers would suggest, you know, that's in line with their achievements. But they were also philosophical about the sense that, hey, we need to get going, too. Like, you know. Uh, sure, we'd love secondary scoring, and we'd love guys to help us out, but we've still got to lead. We can't suddenly become secondary players. And, uh, yeah, I think McDavid was a little banged up. I think both guys, you know, but I think both guys would tell you, yeah, sure, you know, but who is 100%? We were struggling. We're, you know, it, it, there was no sugarcoating. And I think to come through that process and, and to feel those struggles, uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing. And and I would say the same thing for Edmonton. I, I really do. I think I think most teams, and, it, and it's borne out by the 2019 Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, the 2023 Boston Bruins, you know, sometimes when you sail through a year without any sort of adversity, you are ripe to be picked a little bit, you know? And uh, the others have come through a real rough patch. There's still work to be done. I'm not, you know, I'm not stamping their ticket to the playoffs just yet, mm-hmm. but this is a team that's definitely starting to round into form, starting to be the dangerous contender that everyone anticipated they will be. And I expect them to carry that forward. Having said that, they're going to pay for this start at some point. And that, that probably means winning up to four playoff series all on the road. Now, as far as a young defenseman who you heard may be on the trade market and maybe his agent is trying to facilitate a move, is Philip Broberg. What makes Philip Broberg such an interesting young player, but also what is keeping him from playing a bigger role? Well, I think part of it is, you know, the stage that the Edmonton Oilers are in right now. Uh, they're in a they're in a win now mode. Again, when you've got everyone from Connor McDavid to Zach Hyman to Evander Kane, all in their mid twenties to early thirties, you've got a team that collectively is square in the prime of their career, you know, and you've got a couple of more years on the runway with contracts uh, to the key guys. So, you know, I, I, you have to, you have to think that if Edmonton has a window, it's right now. I mean, that's Edmonton, if you're going to win a Stanley Cup, it's a lot easier to imagine the Oilers doing it in the next year or two than five years from now, where they're going to have some guys getting older, some guys come up on contracts. They've they've been able to keep this core together for a while, and because of that, and and this is this may sound a little odd because the Oilers again aren't known as a top defensive club, but other than Vinny Dayarnay, they're they're somewhat experienced back there. I mean, Evan Bouchard is is now solidified as a top door four defenseman. He's he's really only in his you know third full season as a as an everyday starter, but you know he's solidified. 
obviously Eckholm, Nurse, CC, Kulak, all established NHLers. You can debate the merits of where they are in the lineup as as compared to you know where they should be, but the bottom line is they're going to get the minutes. Vinny Dayarnay is on the right side, so what you have is a left-handed defenseman, Philip Roberg. Is he going to play over Kulak, Nurse, and Eckholm? You know, probably not. I mean, the acquisition of Eckholm, as much as it solidified the Oilers defensively on the back end, it took Tyson Berry out of the equation and it added another lefty, further establishing a blockade for Philip Roberg. Now, you can say all you want. Well, you know, he's used to playing on his offside. He's he's done it before. But it's not the easiest thing in the world to, you know, bring in a rookie defenseman and then have him play on his offside all the time. That That's that can be a challenge. So, and then, you know, Jay Woodcroft loved to go to the 11 7 route, you know, for much of the last year and a half. So now you've got seven defensemen, and sure you're in the lineup, but are you really getting more than 10 or 11 minutes a night most nights and often south of that? And so, as a result, I, I think the development stalled a little bit. And, you know, that's where Broberg is right now. He finds himself struggling to find minutes to find a place in the lineup on a regular basis. And that stalled the transition a little bit. I still don't know what Philip Broberg is or will be in the NHL. And part of it is where Edmonton is in its development. When Darnell Nurse came into the league, for instance, the Oilers were dreadful. He was going to get 20 minutes a night no matter what. You know, not unlike, I mean, Quinn Hughes had some growing pains. I mean, people forget now that he's a top five defenseman in the league, but you know, early on in his career first and particularly the second year, people were wondering, well, can he really defend? Can, you know, we know he can transition the puck, but is he going to get overpowered in his own zone? We now know that he can skate his way out of any kind of danger. And, and he's, he defends in a different way and he's, he's established himself. But the, re- the way he got there was playing 25 minutes a night from the get-go. That's the luxury Nurse had uh, because the Oilers were out of contention. Uh, that's not the case anymore, and I think it's hindered the development of Philip Roberg. Jack, we appreciate the time as always. Thanks for this. Oh, appreciate you having me on. Take care. There is uh, Jack Michaels, Sportsnet Oilers play-by-play joining us here on uh, on Canuck Central and uh, yes Oilers five in a row they've started to work their way up the standings still a lot of work to do Jack is uh, bullish on their playoff chances still but one thing he is right about is the wild card spots in the Western Conference and there doesn't seem to be no team has really emerged as a favorite to take a wild card spot in the Western Conference. But each division, the top three teams in each division have started to to pull away a little bit. Well, they have. And there's a lot of ground for them to still to make up. But I mean, even with Vancouver, for instance, now that they've kind of gone on this run, they're not, you know, within striking distance because they're still what? Um, 12 points back of Vancouver. Yeah. But they have three games in hand. Yeah. And if they stretch this into an eight-game winning streak, maybe at some point here there's six back of Vancouver and six points back with, let's say, um, 35 games to go or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, 35 games into the season. That's You can close that gap the rest of the way. So they could get back into you know 
fighting for that third spot or one of the spots in the top three in the division. Like, I think that is possible, but th- that also means they have to stay on an incredible run. Like, they have to play at a 110-point pace the rest of the season pretty much. Which uh, is difficult to do. They did it last year or they, played close to that last year. They have the talent to do it. It's just, is their goaltending good enough to handle it? And when does things kind of normalize a little bit? They're, they had the bad run. Now they have the good run. Where did they kind of stop? And But in terms of being a playoff team, like, are you betting against them? Like if if I can if I can get good if I can get good odds on Edmonton to make the playoffs I'm taking it so like do you feel like Nashville Seattle Minnesota Calgary the Arizona Coyotes and perhaps even the St Louis Blues are so difficult to unseat that they can't get past those teams? No, like none of them are really all that uh, all that scary to me. Like Calgary might sell Seattle. I mean I wasn't convinced on Seattle coming into the year all that much really. Even Arizona to a certain level, like they're they're hot right now. They're getting great goaltending, but I kind of had them pegged as pretty much a 500 team, and I think they'll sort of end up there by the end of the season. Even though they've been pretty impressive lately, there's not a ton of teams I have a ton of confidence in in the Western Conference. Edmonton, like you get Connor McDavid and Leon Drysaddle going, they're going to be tough. Well, they they will be. And the other thing too is I think for Vancouver here. You're six and seven in your last 13. You've had such a great start, 10, two, and one. Things were going to normalize. So we saw, you know, huge winning record the first 13, slight losing record through the last 13 games. Yeah. Start itching back to being over 500 again. Like, and I'm not saying it's over, but if you can actually just get on a decent run here and and play at least 550 hockey for a stretch mm-hmm. instead of playing, you know, 475 or 480 type of hockey, then Edmonton's probably not going to catch you. Don't let them catch you. Yeah, you know, and and I think that's what I want to see them do the rest of this way this season. Finish in the top three in the division. Like you've given yourself the chance to do that. Don't use that cushion just to make the playoffs. Use that cushion you have to actually cement yourself as a top three team in the division. And I think that's still capable. They're poss- They're they're very, very capable of doing that. And that's the thing I want to see because I'm not scared of any of the other teams we mentioned. The only team I'd be worried about if you kind of nap for long portions is the Edmonton Oilers. So if you uh... Break it down over the last ten games for each team. Oilers seven and three in that stretch, fourteen points. That is tied for the fourth best record in the National Hockey League over the last ten games. If you look at Vancouver's record over the last ten games, it is fourth worst in the National Hockey League with four wins, six losses, so just slightly below five hundred. And that's eight points. So Over the last 10, Edmonton has gained six points on the Vancouver Canucks, but they're going to lead a lot more of these 10 game type stretches in order to continue to make up that gap because despite all of that, the Oilers are still currently 12 points back of the Vancouver Canucks. However, with three games in hand. Stan Riccio, Satyar Shah. When we come back, more in on the Canucks and Minnesota Wild as we get ready for the game tonight at Rogers Arena. It is Canuck Central.